السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد أسق الله سبحانه وتعالى that he uh, tests you and all of your families and that Allah عز وجل is keeping you all healthy and safe and that Allah سبحانه وتعالى continues to shower his blessings and mercy and forgiveness upon us during these days that we are experiencing and that Allah عز وجل lifts from us and from others the current situation that we're in and the disease and the pandemic that we are all experiencing. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy upon those of our brothers and sisters that have passed away. May Allah azza wa jal give a full and speedy recovery and cure to those of them who are sick. So last week we began with, um, well we didn't begin but we continued with the tafsir of Surah Al-Adiyat and we covered a number of the opening verses and we more or less had finished the opening section of the surah which is the portion of the surah that's dealing with the oaths that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking and the uh, the detail that he is going into those oaths. So Allah azza wa jal, if we cast our minds back over the last couple of weeks has taken an oath by al-adiyat and the adiyat are those beasts that are sprinting at high speed and panting. And we mentioned the difference of opinion amongst the scholars with tafsir alayhi wa rahmatullah concerning whether the panting of these animals is referring to horses in war or camels performing pilgrimage, making or being used for by those people who are performing and making pilgrimage. And then depending on which of those two positions the scholars with tafsir took, then that explanation that tafsir continues as it moves across into the number of all those four or five opening verses. وَالْعَادِيَاتِ ضَبْحَ Allah takes an oath by them. فَالْمُورِيَاتِ قَدْحَ And as they strike the ground and sparks emanate from their hooves. فَالْمُورِيَاتِ قَدْحَ فَالْمُغِيرَاتِ صُبْحَ And how they wade at the time of dawn. How they wade at the time of dawn. Or, uh, you know, on the, on the opinion that it is with regarding camel, how they come at the time of dawn as they move from those sites of hajj from one to another from uh, Muzdalifa back to Mina and so on. فَأَثَرْنَ بِهِ نَقْعَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and that's I think where we where we finished last week. فَأَثَرْنَ بِهِ نَقْعَ فَوَسَطْنَ بِهِ جَمْعَ So we did the um, translation of the fourth verse and then we came on to the fifth verse. The fourth verse, as we said, Allah Azza wa Jal is speaking about them raising a cloud of dust as their hooves strike the ground and there's dusts or clouds of dust that are emanating. In verse number 5, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then goes on to continue and he's still continuing with the same theme, which is the same description of the qasam and the oath that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has taken. And this is something from the eloquence and the beauty of the Qur'an. There are times when Allah azza wa takes an oath by something. It's not just simply an oath by that thing and by mentioning it just by its name. So for example, the sun or the moon or whatever it may be, or horses, it's not just the name that is mentioned in the qasam, in the oath that is taken by Allah Azza wa Jal, but rather Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then goes into detail and he discusses different aspects of that thing that Allah Azza wa Jal is taken an oath by. And as we mentioned previously, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best that Allah Azza wa Jal is praising these beasts, whichever of those two opinions is taken. And we said that the more uh, common opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir and the one that especially the latter scholars of tafsir have more or less kind of settled upon and it's the one that you'll find therefore in the translations and the meanings of the Qur'an and 
scholars who even came before, like Imam Ibn Qayyim and Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin and Shaqiti Ali Rahmatullah and others, they were of the opinion that the context of the verses and just the way that the verses speak and, 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 the, and the Arabic that is used is more likely to refer to war horses. But what we said anyway, irrespective of those two opinions, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not only praising these animals, but it's specifically praising them in their use of, or in, the, in their being used in a way that is pleasing to Allah azza wa jal, in aspects of worship. And that is the point that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is focusing upon. And so Allah azza wa speaks about the animals in, their, in terms of their charging and their running. He speaks about those animals in terms of uh, the, the sparks that come from their hooves as they charge. He's speaking about them in terms of the timing of when they are used and the place in which they are used. And that's why we said, as we mentioned last week, subha. So the first two verses speak about the animal itself. Verse number three is speaking about the place, the timing rather of when it's being used, when those animals are being used. Verse number four is referring to the place. Clouds are raising dust, referring to the place in which they charge. And then Allah says, And it's almost as if Allah is mentioning the result of their actions. And plunging into the midst of the enemy. And that's the translation of Abdul Halim. Muhsin Khan penetrating forthwith as one into the midst of the foe. Sahih International arriving thereby in the center collectively. Mufti Taqi then enter at the same time into the center of the opposing host. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about these animals as they charge at that time with that speed as they raise those dusts of cloud and those sparks are coming from their hooves they go and fall straight into the middle of the enemy lines and this was the opinion of a number of the scholars with tafsir Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala said when Allah says they plunge into their midst, meaning the, the, into the midst of the enemy. And Imam al-Tabari also supported this position and he said that that's what it's referring to. And then he mentioned a number of other scholars that also agreed with him from his predecessors. So for example, it's reported that Ibn Abbas said the same thing. Ikrima said the same thing. Mujahid, they all said the same thing. And so some of them, in different terms, some of them said the enemy, some of the, some of the disbelievers, some of them said the host of the army, and so on. But those words and those differences in, in expressions ultimately refer to the same thing. And then others said, and this is the opinion of it being referring to camels, so from all of these verses, these five opening verses, in the opinion of the likes of Ali and Abdullah bin Mas'ud and those senior companions who took the position that these verses are not referring, referring to war horses, but they are referring to the camels as they are used by the pilgrims as they perform Hajj. And as they move from the positions and the places and the, and, the, and the sites of Hajj, from Mina to Arafah, from Arafah to Muzdalifah, from Muzdalifah back to Mina. And so, um, for example, Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu an said that it's referring to Muzdalifah. It's referring to Muzdalifah. Imam al-Shawkani, rahimahullah ta'ala, mentioning his own opinion and what he considered to be the stronger of those views, he said that it's referring to the enemy. 
as the horses and the army charges into the midst of the enemies and they break into their ranks. And that is what Allah Azza wa is praising about them, their speed, their ferocity, their charging and the way that they, uh, they charge into those enemies. Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shaqiti, rahimahullah ta'ala, he goes into some length on this issue as he looks at these two different opinions. The opinion of those scholars who said that these opening five verses refer to the horses of war and the opinion of those other of those other scholars and companions who said that they refer to the camels making pilgrimage. And he mentions both views and then he says, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that the Arabic that's being used and the context of the verses and the way that that information is being given, all of that is referring to and seems to indicate, and Allah knows best, it seems to indicate that it's referring primarily to the war horses as they charge into battle. And as we mentioned before, there are other scholars amongst the scholars of tafsir who combine between those two opinions by saying that yes, it is war horses primarily, but that is by way of example, it is not exclusive to war horses. But anything that is used in a way that is pleasing to Allah any, for example, mode of transport or animal that's used in that way, it is possible that indirectly or secondarily, that is also something which can come under these verses and Allah knows best. And so that's what he's referring to. Those scholars who said, for example, you're in the middle of the of the host, you're in the middle for wasat, wasat means uh, the middle, jam is in the middle of a group of people. They said that when it's referring to camels, it's referring to them being in the midst of people in Muzdalifa. So you go into Muzdalifa, as you know, or for those of you that have been for Hajj, and even for those of you that haven't, but understand how those sites work, Muzdalifa is the place even till today where everyone is kind of bottled in together. So even today, let alone in the time of the Prophet وسلم, and, and earlier generations, but even today, if you were to go for Hajj, if you're in Mina, in Mina you have camps, and your camps are based on the continent that you come from. So the Westerners are together, and the Southeast Asians are together, and the uh, the Arabs are together, and, and Africa's together, and Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, that region of the world is together, and so on. And so all of those places are divided by continent. And that continues into Arafah. So Mina, because you're staying there, you have baggage, you have tents, you have you know places to sleep. That's where people spend the vast majority of their time in Mecca, in, in, uh, in, in Hajj, in Mina. And then when they go to Arafah, even though it's a limited time, but because the time that they're usually there is daylight, it's between Dhuhr till Maghrib and they come before Dhuhr and so on, it is extremely hot. And so again, Arafah is a place where you have tents. So people are again within their small groups. So even if it's, for example, a tent that belongs to you know, Europe, within Europe you'll have you know, thousands of tents and within those thousands of tents they break it down and break it down according to your group number. So if you go from the UK with 50 people, 100 people, 200 people, or from the US or wherever you come from, you will be with those people in those tents, with your group, the people that you're traveling with. Or maybe sometimes a few other people if you're very small and they have other people that they mix with you. But again, it's still relatively small. However, when you leave from Mina and you leave from Arafah and you go to Muzdalifa, because Muzdalifa is night, so you don't have the issue of sunlight, you don't have the issue of heat of the day, and at the same time, people spend a short amount of time there because many people will leave after half the night if they're taking the concession, the women, the elderly, the sick and so on, they leave after half the night elapses. So they don't even really sleep. And those who sleep, just sleep, right? You don't really need anything for just that one night. So the government doesn't really have tents in Muzdalifa. 
and they don't really have that kind of area. And really, the way Muzdalifah works is you sleep wherever you, you find space. So if you come and you find space for 20 of you and there's 20 of you, you just settle down and you camp there. And if you come and there's 200 of you and you find some open space, you sleep there. And so next to you are people from Asia and people from Africa and people from North America and people from Australia and people from all over the world. You're no longer within sections of continents or countries or even groups because that is how Muzdalifah works. So those scholars who said that they are in the middle of people in the midst of a place, they refer to that as being Muzdalifah. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. But anyway, that's the position that they that they held. And so the point that I was making is that Muhammad al-Amin al-Shaqiti, rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentions this. And he says that what seems more apparent though, in the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the description of these animals, and in the siyaq, the context that it is mentioned within, it is more fitting that it should be referring to horses primarily. And he says and that seems to be the stronger of those opinions and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So we have these opening five verses that are referring to this very important aspect and that is the aspect of Allah taking an oath by these animals and what they represent and what they stand for and the sacrifice that is being made with them and through them and by them. And then Allah says إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لِرَبِّهِ لَكَنُونَ in verse number 6, إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لِرَبِّهِ لَكَنُودَ Man is ungrateful to his Lord. Or in the translation of Mufti Taqi, man is indeed very ungrateful to his Lord. Sahih International, indeed mankind to his Lord is grateful. Muhsin Khan, verily man is ungrateful to his Lord. Allah Azza wa Jal is now giving what they call in Arabic the Jawabul Qasam, the answer to the oath. Meaning, what is the reason that Allah takes an oath for? So for example, when me or you or someone else says, by Allah, and we take an oath by Allah, we don't just say by Allah, it's not a complete sentence until the oath has an answer, jawabul qasami, second part, that informs us as to why we took the oath. So someone says, by Allah, I will travel to perform hajj. By Allah, I will pray. By Allah, I will get married. By Allah, I will do A, B, C, or D. That second part fulfills the sentence, the oath. Without it, it's, it's an oath that means nothing. It is, a, it is a defunct oath to say just by Allah. And when people just say wallahi, wallahi like that in Arabic or in the Sharia, it is called laghu. It is just called uh, something which people say as part of their speech. And Allah Azza wa mentions this in Surah Baqarah and other places in the Quran. La aymanikum. Allah will not hold you to account from the oaths that you take by way of just normal speech. Because the Arabs, some of them have this tendency they're just within their ordinary speech, they're just saying, Wallah, Wallahi, Wallahi. And they don't actually mean by it an oath, but it's just something which has become part of their speech and the way that they speak, even though it is disliked to take Allah's name in that way. Allah says, but rather you are held to account for what you have conviction for in your heart that you have made an oath for. So when someone seriously wants to make an oath, just to say, Wallahi, doesn't actually mean anything. There's no oath that comes just by mentioning the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is the second part that tells us what the oath has been enacted for. And so therefore it is the same in the Quran when Allah Azza wa Jal mentions an oath, he will at some point give what is called the jawab al-qasam, why Allah made an oath. And that doesn't always have to come immediately like in this case, it comes in verse number six. So Allah takes 
an oath that continues for five verses because Allah expands on it and explains it and goes into detail concerning it. But after those five verses, now we have the Jawab al-Qasam. What is it that Allah is taking an oath by? The nature of people, mankind and their nature and how they behave and how they respond to Allah's many blessings and favors and bounties subhanahu wa ta'ala. Innal insan, verily, indeed, surely, man is kanud. And kanud, according to the majority of the scholars of tafsir, means ungrateful, kafur, ungrateful. Doesn't accept Allah's blessings, doesn't recognize them, doesn't acknowledge them, doesn't in any way, shape or form show gratitude towards them. That Allah gave this person wealth and he gave them children and he gave them so many. And Allah sent to them messengers and prophets and sent down revelation for them and, and told them guidance and told them how to differentiate between right and wrong and truth and falsehood. Yet how do they respond? They reject and they deny and they disbelieve and they refuse to acknowledge Allah's blessings. Inna insana li rabbihi Imam al-Tabari said, Indeed, man is constantly rejecting the favors of his Lord. And the, the land that is described as kanud, this word kanud, the land that is described as kanud is the land in which nothing grows. The land on which nothing grows. That is the meaning of the word kanud. It has no blessing. There is no benefit from it. It doesn't give anything back. And so yes, rain will fall on it just like it falls on other parts of the world and other parts of earth. And yes, you know, the wind comes and the sun shines on it and everything else that happens everywhere else. But this earth is kanud. Not a single uh, plant will grow. Not a single seed will sprout from it. And that is the word that Allah uses. And look at that, that even just that description. Uh, that, that imagery that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us by using that word to describe and that is from the eloquence and the beauty of the Quran that Allah describes a person in that way to that level you don't even see from them a single morsel of good you don't find any good coming from them let alone them acknowledging Allah's blessings and showing gratitude for them and this was the position that the word kanud means to be ungrateful it is reported that Abdullah ibn Abbas said something similar. Mujahid said something similar. Al-Hassan al-Basri said something similar. And he has an interesting statement. He says, He is kanood in the sense that he rejects Allah, but he counts every calamity that comes and ignores the blessings. This is the person who, when Allah blesses them and gives them and gives them, they don't thank Allah, they don't turn to Allah, they don't praise Allah, they don't worship Allah, they don't come closer to Allah they don't use those blessings to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the moment that a calamity and strikes or some difficulty comes, you see them complaining. Why did Allah do this? Surely Allah shouldn't do this. Why would Allah treat me like this? Why? And so they claim and count every single hardship, but they forget the many, many blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's something which we can see in these current days that are people amongst us as Muslims who are like this. At times like this, they lose any sense of appreciation of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to them for decades. And a single hardship, and yes, it is a, an extreme hardship that has come. 
but that single hardship makes them forget about many of the other blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so that is an interesting statement from Imam al-Hasan al-Basri rahimahullah ta'ala. And it's also the opinion of al-Rabi' ibn Anas and Qatada alihima rahmatullahi ta'ala. And Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala said the same thing, that it is a person who denies and rejects the blessings of their Lord. And this is the same thing that Imam al-Shawkani rahimahullah ta'ala said. And he said that the word al-Kanud is taken from the word qat' means qat' to be to cut off. And that's because this person doesn't continuously thank Allah. They cut off thanking Allah Azza wa Jal and, and, um, and praising Him. And he also mentions another opinion or another meaning of the word kanud. And that is that it's referring to stinginess, to be miserly and stingy. And these people are stingy in their praise of Allah Azza wa Jal and their thanks of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala said, all of these different opinions that you have, you know, all of these different wordings, for example, uh, whether it's to cut off or whether it's stinginess or whether it's whatever else, they all come back to that central meaning that the majority of the scholars of the Salaf said, and that is that it is rejection of some type or form. Some type or form. Shaykh Shanqiti, rahimahullah ta'ala, in Adwa' al-Bayan, he has an interesting point that he mentions. And it is a, you know, it is a subtle point that he mentions. And as we've said before, uh, this book, Adwa'ul Bayan, is an amazing book in the sense that it deals with making tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an. And so it's something which, as a student of knowledge, especially if you have access to the Arabic language and you're able to understand that, it is something which I would highly recommend. It is an amazing work. And his um, contemplations within the tafsir, there are not just contemplations that he makes, but based upon evidence that he will bring. And he will show you and the connections that he makes between verses, he mentions things that you will not find in any other book of tafsir. And that is a testament to the knowledge of this great scholar. And he is the sheikh of our sheikhs. He is the teacher of many of our teachers, alayhi rahmatullah. And he was someone who not only had an amazing um, uh, command of fiqh and usul al-fiqh, and this was, you know, he was an expert in those fields and tafsir. But you can see in his tafsir, his command of the Arabic language, his command of Arabic poetry and literature, it is a tafsir that is full of him using Arabic poetry and it's said that he would, from memory, he memorized the poetry of the Arabs and he often brings them to show how the Arabic language is used in, by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the eloquence of the Qur'an. Anyway, he mentions a point which is an interesting point and he says that we say in this verse, إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لِرَبِّهِ لَكَانُودِ Man is ungrateful to his Lord. And then Allah Azza wa Jalla in verse number 7 will say, وَإِنَّهُ عَلَى ذَلِكَ لَشَهِيدٍ and indeed, he is a witness to that himself, meaning, uh, you know, according to one position amongst the scholars, that man himself is a witness to his own, uh, his own rejection of Allah's blessings, his own ungratefulness, his own stinginess and miserliness and so on. Shaykh Shankiti says, how do we reconcile these verses in this surah, surah Adiyat, that a person knows their inner state, knows how they are, is a witness to their own rejection of Allah their own ungratitude how do we reconcile these verses with other verses in the Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that there are people who will come on the day of judgment that will think that all they did in this life is good for example at the end of Surah Al-Kahf verse 104 in Surah Al-Zukhruf 37 in Surah Al-Zumar 47 Meaning these are verses in which Allah says that they come on the day of judgment thinking that they earn good, 
from the day of judgment they will realize that they did evil. They'll come on the day of judgment think that they were guided, but actually it will become apparent to them on that day that they were misguided. How do you reconcile? On the one hand, Allah is saying, these are people who will bear witness and do bear witness to their own disbelief, their own lack of gratitude, their own, their own uh, you know, stinginess and so on. But then on the other hand, Allah is saying that actually these people don't realize and on the day of judgment, that is when they will come to realize. And he says that there are three possible responses that we can give. The first is that Allah is not referring to them being witnesses as in verbal statements, verbal testimony, but rather them being witnesses upon themselves in terms of their action and their states. And that is a, a very beautiful um, connection. It's a very, very fine point. And if you ponder over that, it is very deep. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala isn't just looking at what they attest to verbally, whether they admit to something or not, their actions, their intentions, their whole state, the way that they live their life, the way that they deal and interact with things is a testament to what they do. They are witnesses by their actions, by their intentions. So they don't necessarily have to say anything. And even if they do not acknowledge it themselves by verbal testament, it is their life that is, uh, that is a proof of that. And that is the first response that he gives. And so therefore, Allah doesn't necessarily say that they are test that they are witnesses as in giving verbal testimony, but rather they will be witnesses amongst themselves. And that's an position, as we know, that's supported in the Quran because from the things that Allah will do on the day of judgment is that he will seal people's mouths and their limbs will speak and they will testify against themselves. And Allah mentions this in the Quran So that's the first uh, response that he gives. The second response is that Allah is referring to a testimony not in this life but on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And Allah tells us this also in the Quran. It's mentioned for example in Surah Al-An'am verse 130 They will bear witness against themselves that they were from the disbelievers. And so the testimony that Allah is referring to is not the one in this life but the one on Yawmul Qiyamah. And the other um, position, the third opinion that he mentions is that the uh, the pronoun in the in this in this verse verse number seven that he will bear witness is referring to Allah and not referring to a person themselves. So he will bear witness over them. And the scholars have two positions as we will come on to verse number seven. Some of them said that he is referring to a person themselves. We will bear witness amongst our, upon ourselves. And the other position amongst the scholars is that the pronoun he refers to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Lord of that person. And the Shaykh Shaqiti rahimahullah says, and therefore if it's referring to Allah, that he's the witness, then obviously there is no difficulty in reconciling anyway, because people are on one state, they think that they did good, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows better and he's the one who will judge them. And so each of those three opinions or any of them really is something which is very interesting in terms of reconciling that fine point. So in verse number 7, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِنَّهُ عَلَى ذَلِكَ لَشَهِيدٌ And he is a witness to this. And to that fact, he bears witness. And so that's where we have those two opinions, as we said. Some of those scholars said that it's referring to a person themselves bearing witness. And this is something which uh, you know Ibn Abbas said amongst others. And the other opinion is that the pronoun he refers to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as was stated by Mujahid and others. And Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala says, Inna Allah ala kunudihi 
that indeed Allah will bear witness upon this person to that, or Allah is a witness, not that Allah has to bear witness, but Allah is a witness to this person's ungratefulness towards their Lord. And he says, and this was the position of Qatada, rahimahullah ta'ala, and Sufyan al-Thawri amongst some of them. And that is that seems to be the position that he favors himself, rahimahullah. And so that's, the, that's one body of opinion. As we said, it's the opinion that was also the opinion of Mujahid, rahimahullah, the famous student of Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhuma. So that Allah Azza wa Jal is the one who is a witness to this. Meaning that Allah is witnessing the way that they behave, the way that they act, what they do, how they speak, how they behave and interact and how they respond to the many favors and blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the second opinion, as we said, is that no, actually the dhameer, the pronoun, in وَإِنَّهُ and he, وَإِنَّهُ عَلَى ذَلِكَ shahid and indeed he is a witness to this, is that it refers to, um, it refers to, the person themselves, they are witnesses upon themselves and they will be witnesses uh, to themselves. And as we said, both of them have uh, precedence in the Quran. Both of them have a meaning that is mentioned in the Quran. And Imam Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, he supported this view, that the pronoun is referring to the person himself. And he mentioned this as being the opinion of, uh, from, the, from the early scholars, Muhammad Ibn Ka'b al-Qurawi. He said that it's referring to a person that they will speak and they will be witnesses amongst or upon themselves. And Imam al-Shawkani also supported that view and he said, That indeed a person is a witness to their own, their own sense of ungratefulness. And he says that this was the position uh, that he supports because he gives other positions but he says that this one is the stronger one because Allah Azza wa then goes on to say as we will see in verse number 8 and indeed this person has an amazing love or a, or a crazy love for wealth and so Allah is given two pronouns so the pronouns for them to continue in the same way that he and he and he in all of these verses is referring to the same individual or the same uh, pronoun is referring to the same one rather than to Allah sometimes and the people to sometimes he said that it, it, it flows better that the pronoun is referring to the same uh, the same one. And so Allah Azza wa Jal is not the one who has an amazing love for wealth or any of these materialistic things. So therefore, Imam al-Shawkani says that it makes sense that therefore the pronoun in all of these verses refers to people themselves. And Sheikh Shanqiti rahimahullah ta'ala also said in his tafsir, he said that there is a difference of opinion as to which of those two it's referring to. Is it referring to Allah? was it referring to man and the sheikh himself he referred himself and he said that it was referring to Allah Azza wa Jal and he said that this was also the opinion of Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi Rahimahullahu Ta'ala and um, and so therefore either way though the, 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 the verse the meaning of the verse still is there Allah Azza wa Jal is saying that these people are ungrateful this is the jawab al-qasim this is what Allah is taking an oath by. Allah is taking an oath that this is the reality of people. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, and then they are a witness to this, whether it's Allah who's a witness, and indeed Allah is a witness, as man will be a witness. And so both of them are correct meanings because both are mentioned in the Quran in one way or another. Allah will witness, and obviously Allah sees and hears and knows everything. 
and man themselves will be witnesses upon this, knowingly or unknowingly. Either they know and they have accepted that, or they don't know, but on Yawm Al-Qiyamah they will come to know when Allah conceals or seals their, their mouths, and instead that they have to go and they have to um, they have to speak to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or that Allah makes their limbs speak against them. And we know in the, in the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that there are also narrations that speak about even the land, the earth, bearing witness as to what took place upon it. And so therefore there are multiple testimonies that will be against a person. Uh, let me just take a couple of these questions inshallah that I have here. What is the wisdom and reason behind why men and women are not segregated in Muzdalifah? Uh, men and women are not segregated in the sense that they, you know, everyone's together in Muzdalifah. It's an open place, but they can be segregated in the sense that men can sleep on one side and women can sleep on another side. And, and uh, segregation does not mean, by the way, that in every single part of life that you have to be segregated. When you're walking down the street, when you're you know, in the shops or something, there's no segregation in that sense. And that's not the meaning of the Sharia. What the Sharia doesn't want is people to be secluded, men and women, or a man and a woman, to be secluded on their own, or a group of men and women to be secluded to the extent that there can be some haram or some evil or some fitna that can occur. But if, for example, there's like 300, 400 people in the masjid, and the men are at the front and the women are at the back, and they're in the same place, but they can see one another, that's fine. That's, that's still considered to be... Uh, a segregation of sorts and that is how the masjid of the Prophet was because there were no barriers and walls during that time the second question the horse is an honored creation as you mentioned Allah takes an oath by it uh, does Allah take an oath sorry by war horses for the following two reasons the horse is an honored creation as you mentioned, when Allah takes an oath by something in the Quran, it is to honor that creation because Allah has given it speed. Yes. But as Ibn al-Qayyim and others mention, it is not just the beast or the animal of the horse that Allah is, is, is praising. He is praising its aspect in war, in jihad. Whereas otherwise, if it's just the horse when it's, you know, people are riding it or people you know, are racing it or people are just doing ordinary mundane activities with the horse, then there is no reason for Allah to praise the animal in that way. It is what it is being used for. Right? And that is what Allah is praising it to. And so you mentioned that in point number two. But actually they are the same points. So it is not two different reasons. But rather they are the same one and one reason. And you need to combine those two points. What was the name of the book again and the name of the scholar? The name of the book is Adwa Al-Bayan. In fact, one of the benefits of doing this from home is that I... Oh, okay, I do have it here somewhere. But um, rather than me getting up, it is a book called Adwa Al-Bayan. Adwa Al-Bayan. Adwa means light or illumination. It is the plural of Daw and Bayan means uh, explanation or clarification or some yeah something like that. So Adwa Al-Bayan and the author is Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti. Shanqit refers to a, uh, the area of Mauritania and uh, a particular part of that country. The scholars who come from that country Many of them, um, you know, were, were people who, who studied greatly and, and have, you know, had uh, have an amazing amount of knowledge. And he's not the only one. There are many before him and after him, and even in our time. Um, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti, Rahimahullah Taala, and he was from the teachers of the likes of Sheikh Ibn Taymiyyah and Sheikh Bakr Abu Zaid and 
and many others of the scholars of, of, of Saudi Arabia. He was from the early professors of the Islamic University of Medina back when it opened, when it first opened, uh, you know, some 50, 60 years ago. Rahimahullah ta'ala. And he has two sons in Medina, Abdullah al-Shanqiti and Muhammad al-Mukhtar al-Shanqiti. And both of them are also scholars in their own right. Sheikh Muhammad al-Mukhtar has passed away, Rahimahullah ta'ala, the son of Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin. And Sheikh Abdullah is still alive. And he is uh, a scholar of tafsir and he teaches in the masjid of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Is it available in English? Not that I know of. Not that I know of. As is the case with the majority of our books of, um, you know, of, of tafsir. They are unfortunately in the Arabic language and have yet to be translated into English. And actually what would be better in my view, and you know it's not necessarily easier, but if you put in that time and effort is to learn Arabic and to read them in the original, because whenever you translate any of this, it will be lost. And as I said, Sheikh Shankiti spends a great amount of detail and, and effort in speaking about Arabic language and those points and how they, they, they also impact on tafsir and all the poetry and all of those points and aspects would be you know, would be lost in the English language. They wouldn't really translate very well anyway. And to understand them, you would need more than just, um, you know, just English to understand them. So therefore, these books, and not only his book, but many of the books of Tafsir, if you actually spend um, some time learning Arabic, which is extremely important, then inshallah ta'ala, you will see the benefit of that and the beauty of it as you come to read these books. May Allah Azza wa make that easy for all of us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then in verse number 8, he says, وَإِنَّهُ لِحُبِّ الْخَيْرِ لَشَدِيدٍ and indeed, he is extreme, uh, truly excessive in his love of wealth. And you can see in all of these verses now, Allah Azza wa Jal is referring to people, but is always beginning with the word inna, inna, verily, surely, indeed. Inna in the Arabic language is to emphasize something. And so, inna al-insan li rabbihi lakanud, wa innahu ala dhalik al-shahid, wa innahu li hubbi al-khayri il-shadid. Yusuf Ali, and violent is he. In his love of wa, and that's the word shadid. Shadid means to go to extreme. It means to to have a great amount of of of, of um, you know of, of excess in what it is that you're doing. And so Abdul Halim says he's truly excessive in his love of wealth, Mufti Taqi, and in his love for wealth, he's very intense. Sahih International, indeed, he is in love of wealth, intense. Muhsin Khan, in verily, he is violent in his love of wealth. And so Allah Azzawajal is referring to this person that they reject Allah's blessings, they don't care about thanking Allah or praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. At the same time, they are a witness, or Allah Azzawajal is witnessing what they do, but they have an extreme love for wealth, meaning that they love Allah's blessings, they want more. And Allah Azzawajal again uses the you know the very general word al-khayr, which means goodness in all of its forms. And he doesn't refer to a specific one, but he does specify it. He does say al-khayr, a type of, of, of goodness. And so is it generic or is it something specific? The majority of the scholars or many of them said that it's referring to wealth. It's referring to wealth and that's the khayr that people are most likely to be attracted to and have a violent and intense love for, and what they love to accumulate and have. And that is a love of wealth. And that's the opinion of Al-Layth <coughs> ibn Sa'ad ta'ala and Qatada and an Imam al-Bukhari Rahimahullah Ta'ala also mentioned this in his Sahih, لَحُبِّ الْخَيْرِ مِنْ أَجْرِ حُبِّ الْخَيْرِ Meaning that this is a person who loves, that they that they have wealth. And he says, لَشَدِيدِ is not only that they are intense in their love, but that they are بَخِيلِ 
they are also stingy, meaning that they love to accumulate, but they don't love to share it with anyone else, and they don't love that other people should have what they have or be like them or similar to them. And that is also a very uh, fine point of understanding. Because many of those people who love to accumulate and have and have and have actually don't like it when they have to share or give to others. And they don't like it when there are people who are similar to them. They want more. So if this person has a nice car, I have to get a nice car. And if they have a nice house, I have to have a nice house. And if they've done work on the house, I have to do more work on my house. And if they've done up their garden or they've done something outside, I have to do more. And so they're constantly engaging in this type of competitiveness and rivalry for the dunya. And so they are stingy in the sense that they want to accumulate good for themselves, but they don't like to have it for anyone else. As if Allah's bounties and blessings and favors are so limited and so restricted and so narrow and so few, that if I have some and you have some, then there won't be enough for both of us, either me or you. Both of us cannot share. And that is a, a, uh, a limited and incorrect and deficient understanding of Allah's blessings that shaitan places in people's hearts as Allah says in surah al-baqarah uh, shaytanu ya'idukum al-faqr Allah shaytan promises poverty to you meaning that he tells us that there's not enough to go around there's not enough if Allah azza wa jal gives me and you or Allah azza wa jal gives you there won't be enough for me and if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives me then there's not enough for you and that shows how shaytan comes and he uh, brings those types of whisperings and mindsets within us. And so you find this often within us, within our community, within people, that you find them, that if someone says, oh, mashallah, you know, someone's uh, child memorized Quran or they memorized five juz or ten juz or whatever they memorized of the Quran, but my children haven't really memorized much. And we get this sort of feeling within ourselves that if they've done it, that means that my children can't do it or somehow they're better. And so this deficiency that comes within us in not only wealth and materialistic terms, but in any type of success that we see others have, that is a limited understanding. We're restricting what Allah Azza wa has made expansive. And Allah Azza wa has the treasures of the heavens and the earth as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions them, mentions in the Quran. To him belongs everything in the heavens and the earth and he has all of the treasures. And Allah Azza wa treasures never deplete and they never become less and they don't they don't finish and there's no limit to them and there's no there's no uh, sell by date or or any time after which they will they will cease to exist allah azawajal's treasures his blessings his bounties his grace is more than we can understand and accumulate and so allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spreads that out as he pleases subhanahu wa ta'ala but the problem is we within ourselves from the diseases of our hearts is to become stingy in that way and this is the description that allah azawajal is giving of these people they are people who don't understand that they will return to Allah. They don't plan for the next life. Their whole focus is on the aspect of the dunya. And that's similar to, unfortunately, even in this time that we're all experiencing, in this difficult time, that there are people, and you're amazed to see, that there are people who, despite the difficulty, despite the real you know, presence of death and people dying and people becoming severely ill, like in the UK, the British Prime Minister, was in hospital in intensive care. That's how serious this can be. And it doesn't discriminate between people who are powerful or rich or anyone else. But despite that, there are people who are still oblivious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. People who have not yet to bat an eyelid speaking or thinking about what it means for them and their own mortality and what is to come after they leave this dunya. And that's because when you become so engrossed in the dunya, then a person loses sight of what is more important. And Allah Azza wa often mentions this aspect in the Quran as did the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in his Sunnah. 
that you constantly have to remind yourselves to recalibrate what is priority, what is important, what is it that we're working for. And if we were to die today or tomorrow, what is it that we've achieved and what is it that we will take with us and what is it that we will benefit from, from these years that we've had upon this dunya. Allah Azza wa Jal, um, so in this verse, وَإِنَّهُ لِحُبِّ الْخَيْرِ لَشَدِيدِ الْإِمَامُ الطَّبَرِي رَحْمَ اللَّهُ said, also that it refers to wealth, that this is a person who has an extreme love for wealth. So Allah Azza wa Jal then asks a question, أَفَلَا يَا أَفَلَا يَعْلَمُ Does this person not know? Are they not aware? إِذَا بُعْثِرَ مَا فِي الْقُبُورِ That a time will, ha- will come when all that is contained in the graves will be overturned. And that is the translation of Mufti Taqi. Abdul Halim, does he not know that when the contents of graves burst forth? Sahih International, but does he not know that when the contents of the graves are scattered? Muhsin Khan, knows he not that when the contents of the graves are brought out and poured forth, meaning all of mankind is resurrected. And Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, said in his tafsir, does the person not know that a time will come that this will be their situation, that they will be brought out from their graves and brought back to life and resurrected, and that they will be made to stand before their Lord? And Allah is saying again that these people are so far away, so engrossed in their dunya, in their materialism, in accumulating wealth and more wealth and more wealth, or at least trying to anyway, even if they can't, their whole life is about trying to, and that's what their whole pursuit is, and even when they have wealth, that many people would be happy with, it's not enough for them and they want to continue to have more. Don't they realize that their end is towards their graves and then a time will come when they will be scattered from those graves, they will come out from it and they will be made to stand before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this was the position of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma as well and, uh, and others amongst the scholars of tafsir. Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma said the word bu'thira, the word bu'thira means buhitha, that they will be, they will come out, or ubriza, that they will be made to come out. They will be shown, meaning that their graves will be opened and they will, you can see what is within and they will be made to come out. And this is what Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala said. All of these meanings are similar. They just use different words in Arabic to explain the word of bu'thira, uthira, ubriza, quliba, buhitha. All of these are words that are, that are similar. The translation of Mufti Taqi, does he not know then what will happen when all that is contained in the graves will be overturned? So not just bursting out or forth or coming out or you know being made to stand up or being made to be scattered. Uh, and as we mentioned, um, you know, as Allah Azza wa mentioned uh, in that verse that we were speaking about in Surah Al-Qari'ah, they will come out as scattered moths because of how much, how many their numbers are. The word Bu'thira here, he uses an interesting translation and that is that the graves will be overturned. Like spilt, right? You turn over something and all of its contents fall out. And where he takes that from is the position of Abu Ubaidah, who was one of the famous scholars of Arabic grammar and Arabic language and he said that the meaning of the word bu'thira when it's used for example for a pot or for something else is to turn it upside down is to turn it upside down and Muhammad ibn Ka'b said and that is how people will be resurrected meaning that they will be made to be thrown out of their graves now whether and Allah knows best whether that's a 
a physical overturning of their graves or whether just, that's just an, uh, an expression of how quickly they will come out and how easily they will fall out of their graves because if you're stuck six feet deep in the ground and even if your your grave is open up to come out is a very slow and cumbersome uh, p uh, process but the verses of the Quran if they indicate anything not just this verse but generally in the Quran is that it will be done with speed when people come out like scattered moths, it's not just slowly one at a time and in a very cumbersome and slow way. It is that they are flocking out. They will come out like uh, like those moths as they burst forth and they scatter in the millions. And so he's saying here, uh, Abu Ubaidah rahimahullah and others from amongst the scholars of Arabic language, they said that actually what he means is that they will come out as quickly and as seamlessly as if you were to overturn a vessel. So if you have water in a pot, or something and you turn it upside down the gravity the pull of it it just comes straight out and it falls and that is how pe how quickly people will fall from their graves or come out from their graves and Allah Azza wa knows best and that's what Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala mentions generally without that specific wording but he says that the word is they will be made to come out of their graves uh, and al-shaqeet rahimahullah ta'ala said al-ba'thara means to be scattered. He said that the word ba'thar means to be scattered and that's why you have those uh, translations also Yusuf Ali, Sahih International um, and others that use the word they will come out of their graves as scattered. That's what Sheikh Shaqiti rahimahullah ta'ala said. As the Makhshari in his tafsir he said that it comes from both of those of those root words. The word bu'thira means to be resurrected it means to come out and it means to scatter in a great way as well and so he kind of combines between the two Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says وَحُصِّلَ مَا فِي الصُّدُورِ when the secrets of their hearts are uncovered on that day that's the translation of Abdul Halim Mufti Taqi and all that is contained in the hearts will be exposed Sahih International and that within the breasts will be and that within the breasts is obtained and Muhsin Khan and that which is in the breasts of men shall be made known وَحُصِّلَ مَا فِي الصُّدُورِ Imam al-Tabari said the word means that it will be made clear, it will be differentiated, it will be known what is in the hearts of people from good and from bad and from truth and from falsehood. And Ibn Abbas said it will be made clear, made known. And Imam al-Bukhari used the other word and he said uh, as, and he mentioned this as the opinion of Sufyan al-Thawri that the word is that it will be differentiated meaning the good and the evil will be known and it will be split between it will be made uh, it will be uh, divided right so Allah Azza wa Jal will make it known what a person did of good and what a person did of evil and Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala um, said the same thing uh, also that it will be made clear in terms of good and in terms of evil it will be made apparent that was also the tafsir of Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala. And then Shah um, Shalqiti asks this question and he says, why does Allah Azza wa Jal refer to, um, he says that what Allah Azza wa Jal is referring to here, what is in the breasts of people will be made known. It means that it's referring to the actions, right? So when Allah Azza wa Jal says the good and bad, or when those scholars of tafsir said that Allah Azza wa Jal may clear what is the good and bad, meaning their actions, the good actions that they performed and the evil actions. But Shaykh Shalqiti says, so if Allah is referring to their actions, why say the word hearts or chests? 
right, what is within the chests of people, meaning in their hearts. Whereas actions are not primarily, when you think of actions, it's not what is in the heart, but what is done by the limbs, how we speak and how we move and what we do with our hands and feet and so on. So why does Allah Azza wa refer to this? He says, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, again, you know, mentioning a very fine point, uh, is that because that is the, the place where people's intentions reside. And so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala judges people on the day of judgment, Allah azza wa jalla, as we know, doesn't just look at a person's action. It's not just what they did or how they did it or how they performed it, but it is the intention that they had as they performed it as well. And that is what Allah azza wa jalla, primarily judges a person on their intention. So if a person is praying but they're showing off, does the prayer have any value in the sight of Allah? Does it have any weight? Is there any reward attached to it? That person prayed. They prayed five times a day, every day for their whole life. So why is it then that Allah Azza wa Jal isn't taking their actions? Because those actions are dependent upon the intention. And so he says, and that is why Allah Azza wa Jal refers to what is in the hearts of people. And he says that this is mentioned in many verses in the Quran. You know, except for those people who come to Allah with a pure heart, or when Allah speaks about the disbelievers, your hearts have become hard, and so on and so forth. That is a general principle in the Quran. And so Allah is, yes, is referring to the actions, that's what's going to be made known, that's what's going to be weighed, but those actions are not just devoid, they're not just actions by themselves, their actions will always be dependent upon their intentions and it goes for both ways for good actions uh, for good deeds and for bad deeds as well and then Allah Azza wa Jal says concluding this surah in the final verse verse number 11 inna rabbahum bihim yawma khabir Sahih International indeed their Lord with them that day is fully acquainted Mufti Taqi surely your Lord that day is fully aware of them Abdul Halim their Lord will be fully aware of them all and that's why uh, that's the position of Ibn Imam Al-Tabari Ta'ala, that Allah Azza wa Jal will make Allah Azza wa Jal is well aware of what they did, not only in terms of their actions but in terms of their intentions, and Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will make that clear on Yom Al Qiyamah. As Allah is, and, and the same position, you have something similar being said by Al Qurtubi Rahimahullah Taala and Ibn Kathir Rahimahullah Taala as well, and um, also by other scholars of Tafsir. And so Allah Azza wa Jal concludes by saying that they cannot hide anything from. What, what they do in this life or the next, their ungratefulness, their rejection of Allah's blessings and the way that they behaved, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will hold them to account for every single one of those things and Allah is well aware, khabir, well acquainted, well aware. So he knows everything that they do and he is well aware of their intentions when they did it and what they contained within their hearts and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward them accordingly. Um, Okay, so with that we come to, alhamdulillah, the conclusion of this surah of the Qur'an. How do you link the first three verses of the surah, which is talking about mankind, against the first five verses? So, uh, Allah Azza wa is showing a, a clear distinction, right, between the two. In the first five verses, you have people who use the blessings of Allah for good. They're showing thanks to Allah and one of the primary ways of thanking Allah Azza wa Jalla with blessings is using them in ways that are pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so you have that example that Allah is taking an oath by people making hajj people making jihad people using what Allah has given to them to in ways that are pleasing to Allah and then you juxtapose that with these remaining verses people who don't do that and people despite having perhaps sometimes more blessings than that first group of people that Allah has favored and honored more but Allah Azza wa Jalla doesn't see from them any good and they don't use any of those blessings in a way 
that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah knows best. On the Day of Judgment, when your limbs will witness for you, can you ask for forgiveness beforehand so that you don't get punished and limbs don't witness for that? There's no specific forgiveness, right, for limbs. It is a general forgiveness that you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make tawbah for. And so when you make tawbah to Allah azza wa jalla, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives you for those sins and when he forgives them from, for you, then your limbs won't bear witness uh, against you for that because it is something which Allah azza wa jalla has wiped the clean sleet, uh, the, the, the slate clean of. Last week, Yusuf Imam Tabari mentioned the two opinions for it. The first was they charged and raided the enemy in the open morning. Uh, Abdullah bin Abbas, Imam Mujahid, Qatahad, Hassan al-Basri. Was this referring to horses? Yes. So the charging and the raiding and all of that will always be the horses, right? That's always referring to the horses. And the moving from place to place in Hajj and stuff is always referring to the camels. Okay, I just want to conclude by mentioning um, a couple of things, inshallah ta'ala, last week, next week, last week, next week, is our final lesson for QP for this year. So we are actually taking a break. Um, I think that Sheikh Abu Isa is going to continue our P throughout the summer months, but we are not. We are going to finish our um, our QP as we would normally have done next week, as the week uh, leading to before the month of Ramadan. And the reason for that primarily is, um, number one, because that was anyway what we were going to do. But number two, the reason for that um, is that we are, I am going to do something which isn't going to be on the QP platform, but something which is, I'm, I'm recommending that you all attend if you can, and that is inshallah ta'ala in the month of Ramadan uh, through my local masjid, which is Greenland Masjid in Birmingham. I'm going to be doing uh, a reading and tafsir, a commentary of Tafsirul Jalalain. Tafsirul Jalalain, and so next week's lesson will be another QP special where I will go through the importance of that work, the life of Imam Asiyuti rahimahullah ta'ala primarily, even though there are two authors of Jalalain, um, but primarily Imam Asiyuti and his, his methodology of tafsir. And then in the month of Ramadan, so inshallah ta'ala every day for uh, the month of Ramadan for two to three hours each day, I think we've scheduled three hour sessions because it is a reading of what Imam Asiyuti has, has written and then a study of that and a, and a commentary upon that. Uh, we're going to be doing a juz a day, three hours a day, inshallah ta'ala, of that book, Tafsir Jalalain. And Tafsir Jalalain is an amazing book of Tafsir. It's a one-volume work of Tafsir. And one of the reasons I chose it is because it's been translated into English. And so I would recommend that you buy uh, your version of that. There is an online version which I don't recommend. If you type in Tafsir Jalalain in English, you'll get one that's a PDF online. That's not a good translation from, my, uh, from just a quick uh, view that I had. There is the one that I'm using and the one that we're basing our course on is um, the translation of Dar Taqwa. So Dar Taqwa, Dar Taqwa publications in English. If you type Dar Taqwa, Tafsir Jalalain, it's been translated by Abdul Haq Biuli and Aisha Biuli. Uh, and it is their translation that we're going to be going through. So that's something which we're going to be doing in the month of Ramadan. And it's something which is good because it's not only tafsir of the whole Qur'an because I know that this is going to take obviously a long time in the way that, the, that we're doing and in the length and, and the manner in which we're doing it as well. We're going to obviously an pre- unprecedented level of detail here in terms of our tafsir. But that's going to be something which is obviously a lot easier, a lot quicker, uh, not as deep, but you have an, uh, a very good understanding of the whole Qur'an in terms of its tafsir and not just a translation or a meaning of the translation, it is obviously deeper than that, and it's based on a classical work. Imam Asiyuti died 500 odd years ago, in the year 911 of the Hijri, so it's not something which is very old, but it's not something which is 
you know relatively recent either and so therefore it's something which i would um i would recommend that you that you um inshallah ta'ala if you can uh, attend that that's going to be for three hours you'll get all the details if you follow the green in masjid facebook page and, and youtube channel and so on that's something which um, inshallah ta'ala you'll see but next week i'll give you more details inshallah ta'ala because i will be doing an intro into that um specific work which i will inshallah ta'ala um give to you and maybe um maybe nav can post uh, a link if he will inshallah to um to this so that i think oh he already has so that we can um so you can just see the the one that i'm talking about so that's the primary reason why we're not continuing with qp but there will still be plenty of tafsir um two to three hour sessions a day inshallah ta'ala of the tafsir of jalalain so jazakumullah khair may allah azawajal bless you and keep you all safe and inshallah ta'ala we're going to stop there wa sallallahu ala bin muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh